Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first monthly podcast of the year entitled The Challenges of Fading Inflation. It is the 13th of January. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Niall McDonnell and Alex Byrne. Inflation has hit multi-decade levels, touching 7% in the US last month. It's forecast to peak in the middle of the year and then to fall back sharply. But will that fall be steady or will there be bumps along the way? And how will central banks deal with the balancing act of adjusting monetary policy while also keeping markets calm? These uncertainties could make 2022 a difficult year to navigate. And today we take a look at the implications for financial markets. Niall, could I ask you to set the framework for our discussion today by briefly running through the pressures that have been pushing prices upwards? Good morning, Lorna. Yes, since March of last year, when economies began to reopen post the vaccine rollouts, inflation has been steadily rising across the globe and in the US. So rising above the Fed's 2% inflation target. The 7% print in December you referenced is the highest annual rate since 1982. And stripped of food energy prices, the print was at 5.5%. So it's the highest since 1991. Now, so far, the rise in inflation has largely been attributable to a surge in durable good prices, driven by surprisingly severe and persistent supply and demand imbalances. On the demand side, the COVID-induced recession, if we could call a recession, was the only one in history where people came out better than when they went in. Americans, for example, have accumulated 2.5 trillion in excess savings compared with pre-COVID travels. The stimulus programs across the globe meant people were essentially paid to stay at home and they limited in what they could spend their money on. So when economies reopened, there was this demand surge as people looked to go out, book holidays and do all those things that they couldn't do in the depths of the pandemic. So for example, US retail sales are 120% of pre-COVID levels. On the supply side, global supply chains have shuttered as shipping goods takes longer and requires more labour due to health and safety procedures to mitigate risk of COVID contamination. And then also ports have to close down due to COVID outbreaks. Also on the supply side, labour shortages are impacting as some workers contracting COVID or close contacts. And then some workers that just have not returned to the workforce. We've seen a shortage of HGV drivers in the UK, for example, and then restaurant workers across the globe. Now, the persistence of the inflation overshoot has been surprising. Most central banks argue that these inflation dynamics are transitory, but they have been going on longer than expected. And inflation in the US is expected to be 4% in 2022. So it is declining, but still at a very high level. Yes, indeed. So it was called the Powell pivot after the president of the Fed at the end of the year. What exactly did he say? Well, the minutes from the December Fed meeting, there was a decidedly hawkish tone to the minutes. And really, there was two key points. One, the Fed expects to hike interest rate three times over the course of 2022. This is in response to the inflation surge. And two, almost all participants agreed that it was appropriate to initiate the balance sheet runoff after the first increase in the target range for the Fed fund rate. So basically limiting or reducing the QE program after they've hiked the rates initially. So are all these steps expressly designed to deal with inflation alone? Hiking interest rates and reducing their asset purchase programs are designed to tighten financing conditions. So by increasing borrowing rates for mortgages, car loans, for example, and the rate that corporates can borrow at, it's aiming to cool down the economy from overheating and inflation spiraling out of control. So tighter financial conditions typically mean that demand is reduced and those pricing pressures are lower. Thank you for that. If we could just home in on interest rates, then there is a clear mismatch between the current US headline inflation rate, 7%, as we said, and the Fed funds rate or the base rate of only a quarter of 1%. Historically, it's unheard of. Alex, how quickly could the Fed close this gap? 
Morning, Lorna. So effectively, they can raise it as quickly as they like. Historically, they were much more active in the past, raising, for instance, from 10 to 20% in the space of 12 months in 1979 when we had that huge spate of inflation. Realistically, the environment has changed significantly since we had the global financial crisis and the advent of QE. The last time inflation was at these levels, the Fed fund rate was at 8%, but the trajectory of that time was very different. The comparisons aren't really fair in that response. The Fed's fabled dot plot implied roughly three rate hikes this year, three in 2023, and potentially another two in 2024. So if these are 25 increments, unlikely to make much of a dent on this sort of inflation level. If these all occurred, we'd be at just over 2%, with Fed's long-term projection being 25 so these near-term expectations are in line with the market, but the market doesn't buy into that higher long-term figure with it topping out around 1.75%. This Fed projection, interestingly, mirrors very closely the rises that we saw in 2016, 17 and 18. And in this period out of interest, the S&P was up 8.5% annualised and the 10-year moved from 2 to 3.2%, just for comparisons. The bigger risk for me, I think, is that interest rate rises are brought forward, so from 2023 into this year, or more likely that we get a 50 basis point rise rather than the now market norm of 25 basis points. Yes, and the Fed has in recent years at least been very careful to balance economic necessity and financial market stability. Would you expect the Fed to act more aggressively than its own forecasts if inflation doesn't fall back? The Fed in the next few years is in line with the market and inflation is in line with their 2% target rate for now over the long term. Clearly, their near-term expectations, however, have changed considerably in the second half of last year, and the staunchly held view of transitory inflation has completely broke down. This seemed to be a surprise to almost no one else that lives in the real world, now being replaced by this Fed's aim to ensure that inflation does not become entrenched. Yes, it can act more aggressively. The issue they've always had and will continue to have in the long term is that the lower for longer environment has led to huge credit and debt buildup, much of which would be unpayable if rates rise quickly or to previous average level. So we'll have to be cautious to not stifle growth overall. This is where that risk of stagflation comes from. That simultaneous increase in inflation and stagnation of the economy not held by the perceived need to raise interest rates. The Fed seems to have very little margin for error and we've seen this in the very poor start for equity markets this year. Some stocks have already feeling that pain. Since the start of December, US growth is down 1% and value is up nearly 9%. This trend is even more extreme if you look in the mid and small cap space, where the differentiation between value and growth is north of 20%. NASDAQ had its worst five-day open for six years. That was at the time of the China growth fears previously. It was in correction territory on Monday. Those highly valued tech stocks with the discounted future cash flows really being hit the hardest. Out of interest, something that we don't really touch on too much, but has been a good barometer for what the retail or sentiment is is in the wider world, Bitcoin lost 40% of its value since its November high. Obviously, it's not really relevant to us, but it's a nice indication of those volatile trades that did extremely well during the retail trading of last year. Yes, not quite so volatile, but now the reaction was actually also quite sharp in the bond markets. Yes, indeed. Bond markets have had quite the bloodbath start to the year, with nearly all regions and sectors in the red. Bond prices and interest rates are inversely related, so as interest rates rise, bond prices fall. So a key metric most market participants look at is the US 10-year rate. So this has risen from 1.5% to 1.75% over a course of two or three days. In bond price terms, this means it was down down about one and a half percent. But looking at some of those longer dated bonds is where you really see the price action quite painful. The most extreme example is Austria has a hundred year bond. And over the last six months, that has lost about 30% of its value due to the rise that we've seen in interest rates. 
Yes. Well, what is that telling us then? What are the bond markets detecting now that wasn't evident just before Christmas, for example? I think the market is really pricing in the hawkish pivot that was expected in the Fed minutes. So the price action at the beginning of the year was quite pronounced, but we have seen bond since this time last year, bond prices have fallen and yields have risen from quite particularly low levels post the COVID pandemic. Markets are really beginning to price in this expectation that the Fed is going to move swifter, is going to be and look to temper down the inflation. And as Alex rightly pointed out, the transitory narrative has been removed from the, the Fed's speech. But what happens then if markets wobble, if there's a temporary blip up in inflation? Would there be more accommodation from the Fed? There seems to be a risk of confused messaging here. The threshold to raise rates from here, I believe, is much higher now. We have to remember, though, that the Fed policy is still hugely accommodative as it is. Also depends on what happens in fiscal policy, which of the spending programmes Biden gets through the Senate, as well as the run into and result of the midterm elections in November. Given the potential peaking of Omicron, lockdown should ease, recovery accelerates, inflation continues at a reasonable level, I think. But the longer term remains muted. Bulk of that makeup remains the supply bottlenecks and a little bit of that wage increase as well. Well, medium-term expectations are important. But this isn't the transitory story. Inflation makes a difference for regular people, as it has shown repeatedly in the near term. Yes, and we've focused mainly on the US and the Federal Reserve today. But Alex, it is worth pointing out that other economies and central banks might be at a completely different point in their monetary policy cycles. That's right. So very briefly, the UK is slightly ahead of the Fed in terms of the rate rises, but inflation has been more muted. Europe is something of an outlier. It's steadfastly dovish. The risk is definitely that a more hawkish tilt is needed. Inflation is only slightly lower in Europe than US, but came slightly later. Europe suffered much more lockdowns than the US and its unemployment is still very high. It could be that ECB will soon need to admit the same mistakes that the Fed has with regard to the transitory inflation. Those supply bottlenecks exist, but with that higher inflation, the wage inflation should should be more subdued. The Bank of Japan is by far the most staunch outlier. It has, however, had a much milder crisis. There's less pressure to move from that dovish stance that it currently has. Much more stable government and bank makeup. The risk from the China shutdown, however, is that one fly in the open for China's bank consideration. However, inflation remains low and expectations are still quite muted at 1.5% in the near term. Now, could you wrap up our discussion by outlining our tactical asset allocation in the face of the challenges of the year ahead? Sure, Lorna. Well, on the bond side, we've been underweight bonds for near on 12 months now on the expectation that interest rates would rise and they have and bond prices would fall. We do have a preference from emerging market bonds versus their US dollar counterparts on the higher interest rates that you can achieve by holding this asset class. On the equity side, we are moderately overweight equities and a preference for European equities for a couple of reasons. One, feel that Europe has more room to grow than the US was quicker out of the blocks and with its vaccination program and its reopening. And two, there's more support coming in the Eurozone in the form of the recovery fund that will be distributed to member states. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Lorna.